Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Well, fans, if you're like us, you already know the Masters is here. Bet Online has you covered for all the new scores and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website betonline.ag or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Hey, great to have you with us once again, everybody. Mike, Mark, and Barry with you. Well, if you're like me, you're always noticing what your favorite athletes are wearing, their style, what's cool, what's in. Our guest on this episode, the guy who brought shoe giant Nike to Major League Baseball. He's credited with turning a running sneaker company desperate to make a mark, or in its case, a swoosh on America's pastime into one of the league's premier brands. And while at the same time, making Nike and its athletes household names, so you and I see the star, and then of course buy the products. By the way, this guest is the guy behind Nike's famous Bo Nose campaign, built around the great Bo Jackson. And Mark, Bill Frechette, his run with Nike has been truly game-changing, and I'm sure that you and Barry, like me, are so glad he's able to join us. Yeah, Mike, uh, there's people that uh, come into uh, your life because of baseball, and uh, wearing Nike shoes back in the day was so cool. And uh, the origin of that is really the best story of that. So Bill is going to give that to us. He is a tremendous guy, has a lot of humor, but he also has a lot of great relationships in baseball. And uh, mark me on that list because this guy is first class. Well, this is a treat because to players, they all know you, Bill. But to the rest of us, this is like pulling back the curtain on the Wizard of Oz, the guy behind Nike, as it relates to baseball in particular, but uh, 43 years with Nike, and now uh, you're hitting the links. How are you enjoying retirement? I enjoy it a lot better when I break 90, but um, no, it's great. Uh, I had a great run with Nike. They were awesome to me. I can't say enough. I was always able to live in uh, L.A. the whole time, which is really the reason I lasted so long. I I had a theory about it's like fish and relatives. After a couple of days, you start to stink, so... (laughs) I knew if I ever ended up working in Beaverton, I, would, I wouldn't have lasted too long. So, um, yeah, it's a great run. And to kind of take it from the take baseball at Nike from the very, very beginning before we even had a shoe to uh, leaving it uh, with uh, the Major League Baseball uh, apparel license deal where we uh, every player on the field now wears Nike on their uniform uh, pants and top. Uh, it's kind of a kind of a pretty good run from uh, crummy shoes to uh the license deal. And uh, I left it in good hands with uh, Danny McCormick, one of my dear friends and been my assistant for uh, a number of years. So uh, he's he's in charge now and all good. All right. Let's go back to the beginning then when it all started. We know you work with uh, Mark Sweeney as a player, but also Barry uh, as an agent. And both of you guys have a long history together. Barry, how do you guys even get connected? Well, I got to tell you a little background of myself. I had worked at UCLA uh, when I was an undergrad in law school there and made friends at the time with uh, one of the, he wasn't a UCLA athlete, but he trained there, a guy named Jeff Bannister, who was an Olympic decathlete in 72 and 76. Uh, I uh, then went on to start my law career and in 1976 and early 77, I had just gotten into a firm that was going to be in the athlete representation business. 
I was still friendly with Jeff and Jeff opened the first Nike retail store, at least in the Southern California area over in Westwood Village, just off the UCLA campus. And I would go over and visit Jeff from time to time. And he had this gangly young uh, <laughs> assistant slash stock boy who uh, turned out to be Bill Frechette. So before I ever represented a baseball player and before Nike ever had a baseball shoe, Bill and I became friends. We played basketball at times together. I eventually, uh, shortly after that, moved up to Mammoth and Bill uh, got into competition as uh, America's favorite guest because he would come up and stay with us in Mammoth and ski. And, uh, <clears throat> and shortly thereafter in uh, 1979, as I recollect, uh, Bill got into uh, uh, getting some Nike shoes on to players. And I was there at the time, but I think Bill should take the story and, and tell how he got into it. The main thing I remember about this Nike store, and it was nothing like Nike towns are now. It was a very small, almost hole in the wall place, but next door was one of the great bakeries of all time. And uh, that was one of the reasons to go visit Bill too, is to stop in the bakery or to visit Jeff and Bill. But Bill, talk about that store and how you got started and how you got into baseball. Well, I got into baseball just with a love of it. Uh, my father, my grandfather, uh, they all played. And, uh, I just love baseball. Moved to California from Michigan when I was uh, eight, nine years old. And uh, shortly thereafter, the Dodgers came and that meant Kelly on the radio. So uh, the only problem I had with baseball was um, I really couldn't hit the ball and I really couldn't pitch the ball. So uh, that's a pretty bad combination, but I still loved it. I still remember my first uh, uniform, seven up Cubs and, uh, Going to my first Dodger game at the Coliseum uh, with the Knothole Gang, where I don't know if you guys recall how the Coliseum was set up, but um, <clears throat> the Peristyle End was uh, about as far away from the home plate as you could possibly be, and that's where they put all the free kids. So we ended up throwing fruit in our sack lunches because it was the white ants versus the gray ants. So. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, I always loved baseball. I became a stadium rat. I grew up in Burbank, 10 miles from the ballpark. So I would ride my bike in the afternoons, climb the fence with uh, three strands of barbed wire and go down and wait in the player's parking lot and get autographs from Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale and just all the great Dodger teams in the 60s. And I vowed that when I got my driver's license, I would, you know, go to every Dodger game I could. And, uh, so the year I turned 16, I got a job at the ballpark as a vendor. Uh, went down uh, second night of the, of the uh, season down there and uh, ended up selling ice cream sandwiches. For, uh, 20 cents a hit for ice cream sandwiches. You, you made 20% commission. You, made, you only got paid by what you sold. So uh, I think I made six bucks that night. The Dodgers lost to the Mets. Tommy Davis, the great Dodger outfielder, shattered his ankle sliding into third. So the game took a little longer. So I actually was able to sell a few more ice milk sandwiches. And, and uh, so I became a vendor and uh, just uh, kept that job while I had some other jobs that were legit. Uh, and uh, suddenly a friend of mine called and she had uh, just met some guys in a bar and gotten a job with Nike. And she said, Hey, this is the company for you. I'm going to get you in. And, uh, and she did. Uh, there was an opening, uh, as, as uh, Barry mentioned, uh, Jeff Bannister had been the assistant manager. I moved up and uh, next thing you know, I'm working in this little funky store in Westwood that was basically Phil Knight had set up called the athletic department. It was 
kind of made for runners because um, Nike didn't really have uh, apparel, but you know, we had all the different uh, court shoes and running shoes. And uh, I'm an assistant manager with my only experience is selling uh, ice cream malts and peanuts and Cokes at Dodger Stadium, but I, I kind of faked it for a while, not very well. Billy, interesting uh, that uh, Barry mentioned uh, this bakery right next to your place, the Butterfly Bakery. Uh, why was that uh, so special? It was just a really niche place that caught on with the celebrities, and uh, Nike was just gaining popularity then. And uh, guys, uh, Barbara Streisand, Elliot Gould, Burt Reynolds, some of the big stars of the day would go in that bakery, and then they would come over to the uh, to the store, which was right next door, because Nike was gaining in popularity. And I remember one of my uh, my big moments as assistant store manager was uh, Barbara Streisand came in, and I mean she was she was everything in those days and uh, I said hey Miss Streisand we really appreciate you coming in and uh, like to offer you a 20% discount and she was like oh I'm so thankful you know and she had her bodyguard and when it came time to pay he handed this envelope that said Babs money on it and I looked inside it was nothing but 50s and 100s stuff and I'm giving her a 20% discount on you know all court shoes which went for like Fifteen dollars back then, but I, I thought I was really something. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, obviously, uh, you have to get uh, famous people in the store, but more importantly, you got to get some athletes in the store. How did that happen with baseball players? Give us that story, if you might. Yeah, this is kind of one of the uh, memorable moments uh, slash turning points for me. Really, you know, I, I second day on the job in my new Nike capacity i happened to have lunch with phil knight he was in town and he took me and uh banister the other the manager to lunch and which i thought was kind of cool you know and phil was you know an accountant by trade and said you know a guy new guy comes to town and we went to lunch and the check comes and he looks at me and he goes you know new guy pays plus i don't have any money and i'm like holy crap what the hell kind of what did i get myself into here so I have to say, I still kept my job at Dodger Stadium because at this point I'm I'm moving up in line and getting better items, and I figured it out. And you know, the Dodgers have had a couple of World Series runs, and uh, I'm not giving that up for some company in Nike. That uh, if you look at the history, it hadn't been that uh, long since they've been kiting checks. I don't know, you know, what that means to now, but that's when you have like four accounts and you write a check for one account and then you put one in the next account, you move it around because it takes three, four days. And, uh, Phil was, you know, if you read, I actually recommend seriously to read Phil's book shoe dog, if you haven't, cause, uh, he wrote it himself and it's, it's really cool and tells about the early days. So I'm still working at the ballpark and the Dodgers used to have autographed Sundays, which they made these poor, you can, now Mark, you tell me if you'd been a player then from 1130 to 1215 on a Sunday day game, they made these poor scrubinis go up in the stands in their uniforms, sit at a card table and sign autographs for 45 minutes. And <laughs> here comes Glenn Burke, who was a young outfielder for the Dodgers. Uh, and he's sitting there. I'm, I'm waiting to be a vendor that day and there's nothing happening. There's nobody in the park and he's sitting. So I, I noticed he had Nikes on and I started chatting him up and it turns out he was familiar with Nike. He had been, he's from Oakland and we had a store in Oakland. He knew the people up there. We started playing the name game. And next thing you know, I said, Hey, you should come by our store over in Westwood. I'll hook you up. And he did. And we happened to have a shoe called the Astro Grabber, which uh, was designed for turf football, essentially. And uh, I gave him a pair of those. He loved them. And uh, 
took him back to the clubhouse. And uh, next thing you know, he said, I, you should come down and talk to the guys and give them the shoes. So he got me into the clubhouse uh, back in, uh, I was 77 and uh, kind of got started from there. But I'm still selling those malts and those peanuts when I can get them and sodas because I'm, I'm not giving that job up. So I was doing both. Well, folks, you know we're getting to the point now where prioritizing mental health is becoming far less stigmatized. People are talking about strategies to stay centered and calm in their everyday lives now. And if CBD products are part of your routine, you might want to check out our new sponsor, Sunday Scaries. Sunday Scaries are specially formulated CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12. And today, you can get 25% off your first order at sundayscaries.com. You use the code MAJORS at the checkout page. That's sundayscaries.com right now to get that 25% off CBD gummies. It's interesting, Billy. I mean, the Scrabino that you mentioned, uh, that that was me. And in St. Louis, we, we ended up doing that, which really I think was great as a player. It was that connection with the fans. So great idea from the Dodgers. Also, you benefited from that. Um, what were those early conversations that you had uh, with these players? And how did you convince these guys to get into that Astro Grabber that you mentioned? Well, it wasn't a tough sell, Mark, because the turf shoes in those days were what you could literally bury uh, people in the East River with if you put them <laughs> on their feet. I mean, the other companies just didn't get it. You know, now at this time, the cleats were, uh, you know, all Pony, uh, Converse, um, Brooks was really big, Adidas, Puma. And of course, again, Nike had no baseball interest at all. I remember asking Phil early when I had met him, uh, what, what are the chances of doing a baseball shoe? And he, he, I remember this like yesterday. He was, well, on a scale of one to 10, it's probably a five or six. And the reason is because you can't wear your cleats to the mall, basically. <laughs> you, can, you can wear your basketball, your running shoes. So the shoes that Nike was selling were basically shoes that you know, weren't really being used for what they were supposed to be. People were just buying them. Who cares? You know, who cares if you buy a running shoe and don't run, just give us the money. So the conversations were, Hey, we got this great turf shoe. Glenn Burke was a big advocate and introduced me a bunch of guys. I said, Hey, I don't expect you to wear them in games. And lo and behold, that was the year the Dodgers played the Phillies in the playoffs. And I'd gotten enough shoes in there. And as you may know, I can't remember if you played in Philadelphia, but that, that mm-hmm. turf in the old stadium, veteran stadium, was probably considered one of the worst in baseball. Basically ruined Dale Murphy's career when the Braves traded him there at the end. And sh- sure enough, these guys, the shoe that we had was white with black. These guys dyed the shoe blue and like Rick Mundy and Glenn Burke, I think Davey Lopes, a few of the Dodgers wore them. And that really propelled me into the next stage of people at Nike notice. It's like, wait, how, how do we get, you know, Nike's on the field for these Dodgers. I said, I think it's that guy down in LA. I don't know. Kind of let, went from there. Hey, Bill, you've over the years, you've talked about an incident where you finally decided that <laughs> Nike should be your full time and, and the vending, uh, should become something of the past. Tell that story if you would. Yeah, this is one of those memorable moments. I always thought if I ever had a movie made, this would be the scene that I would remember the most. And now you got to understand, I'm still working the ballpark as a vendor. And the rules were you had to be upstairs and sign in at 535. But I was now going to the clubhouse as Nike man at, you know, 334 o'clock, shoveling shoes, trying to get guys to wear shoes. And then I would change into my vendor's outfit, which meant you had to wear a tie of all things and a white shirt. 
and put my little vendor's badge on with a smock and sign up. And the, the vending thing was all based on seniority. You didn't always get to the best items depending on the crowd anyway. So I, I'd been doing this about a year and a half. I'd been in the clubhouse that night and I made a fatal mistake as a vendor. <laughs> I don't know how familiar you are with Dodger Stadium, but I went down the aisle next to the bullpen, the Dodger bullpen, and which was prime territory, by the way, because those people weren't season ticket holders and they bought more items. So it was sort of a, a mixed emotion that I went down there, but I didn't think anybody would notice. And I'll be damned if Charlie Huff, the old knuckleballer, is in the bullpen. And he saw me and I saw him and our eyes locked. <laughs> and this is a quote. He said, hey, Nike man, toss me a malt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making this up. And I must have looked like a balloon that had just let all the air out. I'm busted, right? Now you got to understand that these items, you pay for them. You, you pay 20% less. You sell them for full. You're making 20%. So I, these aren't comps. I'm not like, I can't go back and say Charlie Huff wanted a free chocolate malt and I gave it to him. <laughs> the worst thing is I got to pass it down the aisle because the aisle's about maybe 12 seats wide to the bullpen. And the guy, well, the first time the malt went over, as soon as the malt went over, all those guys, you know, that Dodger bullpen, they'd sit under the stands, they had that, they came streaming out like ants to the picnic, Mark, I'm telling you. <laughs> There's three malts, look, Charlie's getting free ice cream, come on guys, we're in. <laughs> yeah, how many, uh, how, how many did you end up uh, dueling well, out? Between Mark Cressy, the bullpen coach, and Lance, every, every guy in the bullpen, there was at least 10 or 12, you know, that was that was profit right out of my pocket. And as I got to the top of the aisle, this voice said, you know, Billy, you either got to be the Nike man or the malt man, but I don't think you can be both anymore. <laughs> that was I'm, sure, I'm sure that's probably going to be the, the right choice that you had too. Uh, I, yeah. Go. I like to tell people I probably decided well, but man, I, cause I love the job. You, you know, you, you felt like part of the team. Like I said, I'd, I'd work events. I got into the first Super Bowl with my vending job. And, you know, I was in four World Series that I got to see. And just, you know, just a dream to get paid. And you always got to quit in the seventh inning and watch the best part of the game. So, hey, the yeah, way it's the way it's all shaken out, it's probably either the Nike man or uh, the smoothie man. And uh, <laughs> I don't think the smoothie man would have been yeah. uh, too beneficial. I don't think the mall man got any stock options there. So <laughs> Billy, you know, what's interesting uh, because when you were, you were doing the, the malt man and, and being able to be in the stands, uh, you said, you mentioned you were a huge fan. Uh, what player sticks out? I know you've mentioned some already. Uh, what was your favorite player? Who was your dad's favorite player? Um, my dad was always a first baseman. Um, so Gil Hodges was like the first guy I latched on to who I <clears throat> really feel should be in the hall of fame as an aside, uh, just for what that's worth. But, um, so yeah, I kind of focused on Gil Hodges, number 14. And, uh, that was my favorite number back then. But then of course, you know, as you're working, I got to see Koufax his last two years, uh, 65 was the first year I was working at the park and then 66. So those were two world series years and probably one of the thrills, uh, as I did get into my Nike career was getting to know Sandy. Uh, he was running at the time back in the early eighties when we first met and we, you know, we talked running shoes and that was kind of before he was Sandy Koufax, if you know him. He was just, you know, he's, his legend is built, but we became friends and he would come by the office and uh, give me a call. He was, he was famous for calling at 11 o'clock and saying, Hey, you want to go to lunch at 11 30 and, office, uh, you know, but it was awesome. You know, it's like, here's Sandy Koufax. And, uh, 
So uh, yeah, I'd say Koufax, Drysdale. I, I never got to know Big D, um, unfortunately, but I was in the park the night that uh, he set set the record when he hit uh, Jack Hyatt, the catcher. I don't know if you know the story. And uh, Harry Wendelstead, the umpire, said he didn't try and get out of the way and brought him back and ended up getting out of the inning and setting the record. So yeah, I would say, and, and just to know that I used to sit in the uh, or stand in the parking lot and try and get Koufax and Drysdale's autograph. And now I'm going to lunch. And we've actually gone to dinner with his, his girlfriend. And yeah, so that's that's probably the, the biggest one. So Bill, for our listeners, they're thinking you're giving away malts and astro grabbers in the 70s, <laughs> right? Trying to figure out what you want to do for a living. You make this transition as guys start wearing the astro grabber. But eventually, I would imagine you're getting a call from Phil Knight saying, uh, you're going to maybe sell a spike or something, get these guys in these shoes. So late 70s, it would seem that you had to step up your shoe game, so to speak. How did you introduce spikes to the big leaguers and what was their response? Well, that's a great uh, question. I got lucky. I I had a boss. It wasn't Phil Knight. Phil Knight was my boss, but the guy that kind of saw these Astro grabbers, you know, they were cotton mesh. We didn't have them the right colors. So Getting into uh, late 78, 79, this guy decided, well, we'll make them for you in the right colors with leather uppers. And now we, now you got a real turf shoe that's so far ahead. So now I'm taking these things around to the, uh, to the ballpark. And at the same time, our factory was in Exeter, New Hampshire. And there was a, uh, some baseball nerds back there, too. And um, they started dealing, dallying around with cleats. And they said, hey, we, you know, we want to try cleats on somebody in 79, um, you got anybody in mind? And that's where Barry comes in. I should probably let him take the story a little bit here. Well, as I recall it, Bill said they had come up with a cleat and needed somebody to try them. And I was representing a, a Dodger rookie at that time, Rick Sutcliffe, who was not in their rotation. He was a middle of the bullpen spot starter. And I can remember one day I had been in Santa Barbara visiting family. I'm driving back from Santa Barbara. I had given the shoes to Rick. I said, you know, give these a shot sometime, you know, wear them before a game and see what you think. I'm driving back from Santa Barbara and I hear Rick Sutcliffe's on the mound for the Dodgers. Bert Hooten had gotten the flu or something and couldn't go. And about half hour before the game, Rick gets uh, gets the call and he's wearing the Nike spike. So there he goes straight out to the bullpen warms up and comes in and pitches. I don't know if it was a complete game. I think he went seven innings and got a, got the win. Ended up uh, that year being rookie of the year, had 17 wins. But the, the, the part I remember is that after the game, I get a call from Rick saying, hey, I got to get another pair of those shoes. They were great and I won my game, but the bottom broke, the molded sole broke. I tore through the side of it. You got to give me some more. So I called Bill and Bill, of course, brought a couple more pairs down and Rick wore them in every game that season and has worn them, worn Nike in every game he's ever played since then. Uh, And that was, uh, as I recall, one of the first guys. I'm not going to say he was the first for sure, but he was one of the first to to wear them in a competitive game like that. We had the, we had, like I mentioned, we had the turf shoes, but uh, actually, just to correct you a little bit, Barry, first of all, we have to say that Rick only weighed about 190 pounds back then. So <laughs> when the shoes broke, that wasn't a good thing. Now, you, because I know you're all thinking, well, what the hell, you knew the shoes were great. 
So let's let's get that on the record. Sorry, <laughs> you know we love you. But uh, the other thing was that we were making them by hand, and so he had to switch back to Converse when, when we couldn't get them out in time because we're just dabbling in cleats. And so he, he claims that he would have won all 27 starts or whatever it was if he hadn't had to wear his, his Converse during the couple of starts when we were trying to re redo. But for me, the big the big break uh, as far as my career at Nike went was that same year in 79, we got Sut trying to, to get the cleat sampled. And meanwhile, I've been giving out these Astro Grabbers in team colors, and I decide the All-Star game is in Seattle, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go up there and see what I can do just for the hell of it. And I loaded up three of these big Algoma bags, took the shoes out of the box, the Astro Grabbers, that's all they are, turf shoe, different team colors, tried to judge sizes and loaded them up and flew up to Seattle. I got no credential. I got nothing. And Monday morning, of course, they didn't have all the home run hitting and stuff. They just had sort of a public workout. And uh, I see Gaylord Perry having breakfast in the hotel. Now, I had met Gaylord at, during the course of the early part of the season, giving out these Astro Grabbers. And I said, hey, Gaylord, can you help me out? I need to try and get in the clubhouse. And he's like, uh, yeah, you got a car? I said, yeah. He goes, all right let's go. So I drive, drive Gaylord with my three bags of Astro grabbers into the, uh, into the ballpark. And I follow him in the guard thinks at the gate, thinks I'm a player, I guess, or I'm with Gaylord. And then we walk in the clubhouse, the clubhouse guard doesn't, doesn't stop me. And uh, he drops his bag and goes, you're in. And I'm looking at the American league all-stars and, you know, I mean, there's George Brett and Reggie Jackson and Ron Guidry and Greg Nettles and Carlton Fisk. And, the first thing I see is the Adidas guys, which was the king back then. They're down with Reggie, Reggie and Gidry. They're they're showing their nice warm-ups they have. And all I got are these, these Astro Grabbers. But I started going around and saying, hey, I know you can't wear these in the game. Just try them out uh, before the game. See what you think. And I took all kinds of pictures. I was into photography. And uh, I took all kinds of pictures of players before the game, you know, working out. And then I sent them up. I wrote a great report, sent them up to my uh, my bosses and just said, hey, this is what we got. This is the potential. And they more or less at that point said, well, looks like this guy's, you know, already doing it. So let's let him do it. And let's start doing cleats in uh, 1980. So that was our first official year with cleats, uh, contracts, spring training, all of the above. And uh, that's that's another story. It didn't go quite as well as we had hoped, but we can we can talk about that as we move forward. No, please do, please do, because we know you had to go to uh, spring training. I think it was with Baltimore, and uh, well, let's just say it didn't go as scripted. Well, yeah, I mean, our guys finally figured out the spike plate, which Sutcliffe had tested for us. And I will say that Nike does have uh, has always followed the the mantra of listen to the voice of the athlete, which is one of the reasons they've made great great product and so uh that that helped the feedback from rick and just uh, we actually had carlton fisk and uh mike schmidt fly out to oregon in december of 79 prior to the start and give us some ideas and uh have have give them a little trip to the uh the warehouse and uh let them uh, get a few items and uh so we got some ideas from them and uh off we go so our guys made a beautiful cleat with full full grain leather. Now, I don't know how much you know about that, but that's like wearing dress shoes your first day to school. And our competition at the time was Brooks, which they made the lightest 
shoes. They were almost disposable. They're, they, I, the Brooks guy told me I usually have to give six pair because at least two or three, the, the, the flap falls off or the, the laces break, you know, but they just kept handing them out. And I, we come in with this full grain leather shoe. And I finally, first camp, <laughs> backing off a little bit, the Nike, uh, Phil had called the company Blue Ribbon Sports. So I'm walking in with this Blue Ribbon Sports bag, uh, which is full of shoes. And I'll never forget, I walk in and John Lowenstein just looks and goes, hey, it's the Pat's Blue Ribbon guy. I'll have a beer. And I'm like, no, no, you don't understand, John. I'm, I got, I've got this shoe called Nike here. And of course, half the people thought it was Nike. No one could pronounce it, you know. And uh, so I start working the clubhouse. The 79 Orioles, I should add, were, you know, played the Pirates in the World or the 80, yeah, the 79 Orioles. This, so they're the World Series. Uh, they lost to the Pirates. So this is a real deal. These are, this is a good club. My first experience. And I finally get a, a guy named Benny Ayala, a left-hand hitter, Role, kind of a Mark Sweeney played in, you know, you know, 40, 60 games, had 90 at bats, you know, but I was, you got to start somewhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> you got to. So <laughs> I'm so happy. I'm He says, I'll try him. I'll go out of the field. So they take, he takes BP. And back in those days, and I don't know if you ever did it, where after you hit, you jogged first. And then I guess the next, the next guy behind you hits behind you and you go to second and then you try and move him over third. I don't, that's anyway. So Benny, yeah runs to third and he literally sits down on third base behind the screen and takes his shoes off. <laughs> he, could only, he could only go 270 feet before his feet hurt. <laughs> Marketing genius. What was the reaction from Bill Frechette? The Bill Frechette's voice, it was that little Charlie Huff voice in my head that this time said, this isn't going to be as easy as I thought it was. <laughs> and it's just a full grain leather. It's like wearing a pair of shoes your first day of school. So basically, real quick, uh, I uh, I realized that the shoe, the shoe was really good. It just it took, the pitchers loved it. We had a lot of catchers that year. Steve Carlton loved it, wore, won the Cy Young. We ended up making a mesh shoe. We, we re, re listened to the voice of the athlete and uh, we made a shoe with a mesh upper that took a couple months to get out there, but kind of got things going for us. And we ended up having a, an okay year in 1980. You know, obviously uh, success ensued. You guys did a little better than Benny Ayala as you <laughs> went on. And Nike has always been noted for their great marketing. And a big part of that uh, to me was the posters that you guys uh created uh, with various personalities. I can remember early on Wally Joyner and it was when it was the Angels and it was Wally World and then Sutz World on a pitching mound that looked like the Globe and Amazing Grace with Mark Grace. But you guys did a, an, a, an amazing number of great posters with many personalities. What sticks out about making those posters to you and the, the process that went on there? Well, I think the big thing was that, yeah, you have to understand how big posters were back then. Uh, you know, now I don't think anybody collects them, but um, we had a, a guy named Peter Moore, who was sort of our creative director. And Peter was just a genius. Uh, for example, you mentioned Wally's World, but it wasn't just Wally's World. In the background of Subtle, you could see the Matterhorn, the Disneyland Matterhorn, you know, I mean, because Wally's World. Uh, MVP inside was Mike Schmidt uh, and Steve Carlton because they were the 1980 MVP in Cy and uh, Carlton's uh, got a 
smoking baseball fire coming out and, and Schmidt's got his bat on fire. Um, we had a lot of penguin power with Ron Say. Uh, we had six, six stuffed penguins, which doesn't sound like much, but you can't just go get six stuffed penguins from any store. We had to sign like 85 releases uh, to get it done. Um, Kaylord, the uh, pure pitcher with Gaylord Perry, uh, making it look the label look like the Vaseline jelly. Um, Frank Sweet Music Viola on the mound in a conductor's, in a conductor's outfit. Um, but probably the most notable and uh, the one that was looking back the scariest was Tiger Catcher with Lance Parrish when Lance was the guy back in the day in the 80s after the Tigers had won the World Series. And so it sounded like a simple thing. We're going to have a Bengal Tiger stand next to Lance and take a few pictures, you know, how, how hard can it be? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine doing this now? I'm so Lance Seems like, safe. I don't know what could go wrong. Yeah, what could go wrong, right? So not thinking too much about it. And I take Lance out there and they said, bring his catching gear and, you know, we'll just do a quick, you know, we get there. And first of all, I see this huge cage out in the back lot of the photo studio. And I see this huge tiger. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a little bigger than I thought tigers were, but, you know, I'm sure he's trained. And then the trainer comes in and this guy's got more scars in the uh, the landing zone at LAX. I mean, it's all over this thing. And so the whole, sh then he says, we need your catching gear. We're going to take it out and let the tiger smell it and put it in his cage for a while. So he, he's familiar with you. And now I'm thinking, this is really getting a little more than I thought. And then I look and he's got big hunks of meat to keep the tiger at bay on a stick. And, and he's got a chain the size of a, the lynx could hold hold a, a a big boat to the dock around the tiger's neck, so he brings it. He brings the tiger the tiger in, and he's got the meat, and then he takes off the, the thing, and he tells Lance to slide in, and we shoot the thing, and then the guy brings the meat in, and Lance slides out. And but you know, photographers they're not going to go in one take, two takes. So now the tiger's getting full at the end of this thing. He's not so worried about the meat anymore. We found out later. And all of a sudden, he he kind of at the end of like the last shoot, he we actually have this on a video somewhere. He looks at Lance and he like, who are you? And he kind of like paws at him. Like he, the, the trainer said he wanted to play with him. And I see it's the funniest thing. Lance, as he's sliding out, just goes, oh, darling. <laughs> I leaped over the thing with the chain. <laughs> And the whole time I'm thinking, how am I going to tell Sparky Anderson that your catcher got mauled today <laughs> in a poster shoot? Yeah. <laughs> That's probably not going to fly, but Lance was a great sport. And the funny part was the poster came out, it was awesome, but the tiger was so real, it looked fake. Could have been, it could have, we could have had a stuffed tiger, I think. <laughs> <laughs> stuffed tiger would have been uh more appropriate i think with well, that uh, the way things went we might have had to have a stuffed lance so yeah. <laughs> exactly you know what billy uh the creativity for nike had to uh you had to resonate with different sports as well um something that's interesting that i always remember in my youth and and i'm sure a lot of listeners remember the, the slogan bo knows uh bo jackson probably the ultimate athlete back in his day football player turned into baseball player um this was a huge impact for you and uh the brand nike tell us about that yeah it was uh, quite a story actually because bo as you know was the uh 
Heisman Trophy winner and out of Auburn, and everybody assumed he was going to go play football, and Nike did as well. And we had a beautiful program uh, set up for him. Uh, we were going to make a line of bow football uh, training apparel. But the recruiting war to begin with was pretty tough because all the companies wanted them. So Nike, in their own way, did a little research, and we found out that Bo was a hunting and fishing guy. So when he came to Oregon, myself, uh, the director of promotions, and Bill Keller, who is a dear friend who is a football guy, we took Bo out for a fishing trip in the morning. And I, I'd never met Bo. The night before, they said, hey, you know, be in the lobby at 5.30 in the morning. Bo will be there. And I'm thinking, there's no way any athlete that I've worked with is going to show up at 5.30. Um, never having met Bo. And I go down there at 5.15, and there's a there's a specimen in an Auburn hat. Uh, it's Bo Jackson. And off we go. And we we got this guide, and we're catching fish, uh, salmon. That we, it's just Bo had the greatest time. And he told his agent later that these guys knew – kind of got me and uh, knew who I was. And so they signed with Nike. Uh, and then he goes to meet with the Tampa Bay Bucks who had drafted him. And the owner uh, sort of had some racist overtones, according to Bo. And he decided he was going to play baseball. And the Royals drafted him in, uh, I think, the third or fifth round. I'm not sure. And I get a call from the head of marketing. You know, all our plans are blown up for football equipment now. Um, or football apparel because Bo's playing baseball and he goes, Hey, Bo's now your guy, get to Memphis. He's playing there and, and, you know, go, go see Bo. So off we went and uh, I saw him play with the Memphis chicks. Uh, it was amazing. The first night it was like maybe his third or fourth pro game. And you know, you, you'll appreciate this Mark. The first at bat, he hit like a, a rocket to short, and I still don't, to this day, know how he beat it out. I mean, the guy made a perfect throw, perfect play. He was so fast. Then the pitcher had a mediocre move to first and picked him off by three feet. You can just see the rawness. Uh, the next time he hit a ball that may still be in orbit, um, it was just amazing. You got to see all of Bo in one one fell swoop. So uh, got to know Bo, and uh, we worked on the cross-training thing. And uh, we did some unbelievable ads. I'd like to tell you about probably the most uh, famous one. It's called uh, Do I Know You? I still have the poster here in my room here. And basically, we had all the different bows, hockey bow, uh, uh, race car bow, uh, of course, football bow, uh, surfer bow, jockey bow. And the thing was that this was done before uh, CG, computer-generated stuff in commercials. So we had to use what was called a green screen, and you may be familiar. And it was so intricate because they had to decide where where bow was for this one bow was, and then you got to be in the other. They were blending it all together, and it was a long, long ass shoot. Uh, bow was really good. Bow was always per he was very punctual. He'd always show up on time, and then always try and leave early, but he would stay because we needed him. So the shoot was taking place over the weekend. It'd been two days, Friday, Saturday. So Sunday morning, we're getting close to wrapping up. And the last kicker to it is the late Sonny Bono, the singer, has got a cameo in this thing where he walks in at the end of the commercial and says, I thought this was a Bono commercial, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, Sonny's call time is 11 a.m. on Sunday. He's a mayor of Palm Springs at this point. And it's the last shot. And then everybody's cool in the hills. He's, I think these you know, union guys are getting three times and a half or whatever, you know. 
And Bo's cool in his heels because he was always punctual. And there's no Sonny Bono at 11.30, at 12. Finally, Sonny strolls in about 12.15, you know, and basically one of the typical act. What are we doing? What are we doing? Okay, we're, okay. now, Bill, go get Bo out of the trailer. We're ready. <laughs> I go to get Bo, and Bo is pissed. <laughs> like, fuck Sonny Bono. He made me wait. <laughs> I say that? <laughs> yeah, of course you could say it. <laughs> I'm not going out there. I go. I finally, I got a whole crew, Sonny Bono, everybody. And they're, they're, and so I finally, I said, hey, hey, Bo, listen, Sonny Bono doesn't know who the fuck you are anyway. So let's just shoot this and we can all go home. Well, well, okay then. <laughs> and Sonny, and Bo goes out. He never acknowledged Sonny Bono. He never said hi. He just stood there and Sonny did his bit, walked out the door and it was a wrap. And it's one of, you ought to look it up on YouTube if you haven't seen it lately. It's one of the best commercials ever. It is hilarious. <laughs> I, I remember it, Billy, like it was yesterday. And when you bring that up, it, it just resonates with me because the impact that that had, because this was the talk of sports, not only baseball, not only football. Yes, Nike grabbed him. And yes, it, it seemed like Bo knew everything. My first big league spring training, Bo Jackson's there. And I walked in the room and it's almost like you wanted to go over and ask for his autograph. That, that was the feeling that you had as a young player. So as I'm going out to field 18 to take my batting practice <laughs> over, at, over at Angel Stadium... Uh, I walk by field number one and Bo Jackson's taking BP. This was the first time I got to hear the sound off his bat the, to, to see what was going on. Well, his first hit was a line drive to right that I watched. His second ball, he broke his bat. And then you could hear this big crack and you could tell he broke his bat. And then it proceeded to break in half when it hit his back. But I look up as I'm walking by the field, and sure enough, this ball that he hits that he broke his bat on went over the batter's eye in center field. So to me, that was something that if I break my bat, uh, I think it's, you know, the wind must have been blowing in because it's going past the pitcher's mound. Bo Jackson, to me, was uh, anointed as a guy that was just way above anybody in that in that realm. So... To personalize it was really cool. To see him wearing the Nikes was even cooler. Um, my question to you is, Bo Jackson, you got him. It must have been easier to acquire uh, the, the talented players after that. What was your job like after a Bo Knows camp campaign? Yeah, I think you're, that's a great point. You know, I mean, I remember one ball player, young guy that I, to this day, I can't remember his name, but he just kind of, after seeing, after Bo kind of made his mark, it was like, well, Nike speaks for itself now, you know, I mean, it was basically, you got Bo, he legitimizes everything, and the the marketing uh, that we put around him was really incredible, and I, I don't know which commercial it was, it might have been the uh, Do I Know You commercial, but uh, when Bo hit the uh, home run in uh, the All-Star game off of Rick Royschel in the first inning, as probably one of the more famous launches you know kind of similar to your experience i happen to be sitting in the in the third row and just i mean to this day it looked you know like he just took a friggin you know driver and hit a golf ball and we had scheduled a commercial at the end of that inning so bo hits one of the most memorable home runs and here comes the nike commercial with bo i mean that that, that was like the talk of the town like wow you guys now you're scheduling uh, home runs on cue you know 
But I have to tell you another quick story about Bo to kind of the frailties of hitting and, and being Bo. We did one commercial. Um, I don't know if it really ever got many legs, but much legs, but um, we were shooting a baseball spot in November while he was playing for the Raiders. So that doesn't seem like that big a deal. You know, guys, November, he hadn't touched a bat in a couple of months. We go, take him out to UCLA. It was on a Friday after the Raiders were having, a, they had a home game Sunday. So they had a light workout. Get him out to UCLA. We got a college batting practice pitcher who's, you know, laying him in there at 80 miles an hour. We got fans and, you know, extras in the stands. And we're shooting with Joe Pitka, one of the great commercial uh, producers, directors of all time. And he's using high speed cameras slow motion in other words well if you've ever been around high speed film it sounds like a fishing line going out when the, a marlin hits it's just <laughs> and they're shooting and Bo cannot touch the baseball with his bat he is swinging and missing like you've taken some fan out of the stands to try and hit against sandy Koufax. and he's getting frustrated and the, the film keeps spinning and he the more harder he tries the worse it gets. I mean, he can't hit a foul ball, Mark. It's like, <laughs> and I'm thinking, now, wait a second. It's only been two months. So you, uh, you, well, the real Bo Jackson, and now he, now the, the extras, they want to go home. They start ragging on him, which makes it even worse, you know? Like, hey, Bo, get a paddle, you know? <laughs> get a paddle. At one point, the, the production assistant, the PA, this little PA comes up to me and she goes, does he not know we want him to hit the ball? <laughs> 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 they're running out of film. They're shooting swings and misses. And I finally pulled both sides. I said, hey, give me a minute. I, I did a little soft toss with him. And he came back and he hit a, a foul pop-up to first base. And that was the best they could do. So to me, it really showed out hitting isn't as easy as people think. And he was in a complete football mode, you know, probably, you know, hadn't touched a bat. And uh I think everybody thought it was my fault because he wasn't hitting the ball. <laughs> hey, gang, it's time now to make your outdoor experiences a lot better with Canaan. Canaan sunglasses are made exclusively with polarized lenses for optimal clarity, and they're made with Japanese optics. So what do you get? Well, you get clearer, lighter, and stronger lenses. And you also get Italian handcrafted frames that are impossible to scratch. Use the exclusive code KananCast15 at Kanan.com to receive 15% off your first pair. That's KananCast15. KananCast15. Kanan, clearly better. It's a fascinating evolution of your project when you think about the Nike clipper and the dress shoe you referenced with Benny Aiella, right? Morphing into the Bo Jackson model, so to speak, and the cross trainer and getting that mass appeal. And then you seem to move as a company to another level with Ken Griffey Jr., who captivates the baseball world and really transcends the sport in and of itself. How was Griffey... Uh, able to impact your company and the sport to the level it appeared he did? Yeah, it was, it was Griff, uh, again, great marketing. I mean, we, we had Griff for president that one year. We had the, uh, one of the great commercials was I Got It, where he, he yells, I got it, of a fly ball in center field and races across America. And, you know, Griff just had that appeal, uh, the swing. Uh, you know, it's, it's always a shame that he started out in Seattle. I think he probably didn't get quite the due. But again, the, the Griffey trainer, the off-field shoe, the spinoff, was uh, a huge success. I mean, it was just a great shoe, and that that spurred it. And of course, you have Griff that's uh, you know a highlight reel in himself. 
he was great to work with, uh, easy to work with. And, you know, the big thing, he was, he was close to Portland, uh, Nike's home, home base and we were in there being up in Seattle. So we got a lot more uh, hands-on work with him in terms of designing shoes and creating shoes. Although I do have to tell you a little insight. Um, we were, we were, Barry Bonds was, you know, at his peak and this was before Barry decided to, uh, hit the additives, so to speak. Um, I mean, we, I worked closely with Barry and he did some stuff for us and, uh, he actually was in a, a slam dunk contest that Nike sponsored back in the day. I don't know if you remember the slam fest, uh, deals that, uh, Foot Locker would sponsor. Oh, yeah. And it was for all non-basketball athletes and we bring in some football players and we had, you know, Kenny Lofton, Fred McGriff for baseball, uh, and Barry Bonds. And, uh, so, you know, Barry could actually dunk, um, and so we went out to uh, meet with Barry to make him the first cross trainer guy since Bo. And Barry, we spent two hours with him at his house in Murrieta. And he basically loved the idea. And then we were gonna pay him, I think a hundred grand, which at those days was really good money and plus royalties. And he basically took me outside. He didn't want the marketing guy or the uh, developer to hear it. And he basically said, you know, Bill, I love everything about it. He says, but I got more MVPs than Charles Barkley and you guys pay Charles Barkley a hell of a lot more than hundred grand. And I, you know, and Charles Barkley was the guy back then, you know, next to Michael. And I said, yeah, but I use the same line, you know, Barry, you know, he's a basketball player, you know, you don't sell as many basketball, uh, baseball shoes and blah, blah, blah. And he said, no, unless you pay me what, what uh, Charles gets, I'm, I'm not going to do it. So, Hey, Ken Griffey, what are you doing? Would you like to have, <laughs> yeah you guys had something interesting you know what was interesting billy is that you you had some choices too there was frank thomas uh david justice was another guy but i think you look at ken griffey jr and i read this too which was really interesting when you're around ken griffey senior he'll let you know what he had over his son he actually oh. had a shoe contract before junior did but sure. uh, obviously not the same impact that Junior's going to have on your marketing campaign. No, no, you're right. I used to, I remember when Ken first signed uh, Birdie, his mom would call me and just talk about shoes and how he's doing. And uh, it was fun. And then we did a photo shoot with Ken Sr. and Ken Jr. And I'm picking them up in my old beat up Ford uh, Explorer, Exploder, as I call them, and driving these guys to the photo shoot, you know, and it was like, man, I better not run any red lights here. But uh, yeah, it, it, it was a great choice, and and Griff to this day, he goes on our baseball trips, and it's just a, he's funny, he's easy to be around, and a good good golfer, as you know. Uh, interesting, Billy, you just uh, set it up perfectly for us. Uh, these baseball trips, the the famous Nike trips that you say, um, uh, were there any requirements that you had to get onto that trip? Because uh, that was something that was special and resonated throughout baseball. Yeah, I think uh, originally we started the trips in 1980, and the idea was to have a, a pro club. Um, this didn't last too long, this idea, but they tried it in basketball, and they were going to have sort of founding father-type guys that would all get royalties based on uh, baseball shoes sold. And so the original group was like Ron Say and Carlton Fisk and oh Steve Carlton, Jim Sundberg, uh, Schmidt, uh, and we would provide this trip, all expense paid, uh, vacation for a week, and you guys would get some royalties. So that's two all-star games was sort of the, the 
criteria, which um, we tried to keep up for quite a while. And uh, that was that was sort of it. But gosh, the trip, the trip relationships, uh, a good, good example, just the other day, uh, Mackenzie Carpenter, uh, Matt Carpenter's wife, uh, received a call from Laura Arenado, you know, because they'd been on the trip together. And of course, Nolan moving to St. going to St. Louis and just connecting because they knew each other from the trip. I mean, it's just a relationship. Don Sutton telling me, you know, he would have never met Jim Sundberg. Uh, and now they're, you know, they were best of friends before Don passed. Uh, the relationships and then the insights that we got, we would bring shoe developers. Uh, and as Nike grew, we had apparel people, we had people that did our batting gloves, our eyewear. So we got insights during the week from the players and, and guys got to know each other um, throughout the, uh, the, the year. So it's lifelong friendships and um, just uh, we'd have a little business meeting, give them insights. And, and uh, it's really been the best highlight of, of my career at Nike. It's just been nothing like it. It's uh, been uh, really fun. And we've gone to Mexico and Hawaii and cruises. And uh, we had a couple down years when Nike was really struggling in the mid 80s. So we went to a dude ranch in uh, Arizona, which uh, was a little different. And uh, uh, just just a lot of great memories and a lot of great friendships. I think at one point I, I counted we had close to, we had, we, we've had 24 Hall of Famers over the years go on the trip. Just pure Hall of Famers alone, not to mention just great players too. Hmm. Yeah, Bill. Unfortunately, agents didn't get to go, so uh, well, I missed out. But I heard a lot of great stories about how great the trips were and how great the players were treated and their wives and girlfriends. But you know, you mentioned relationships. Uh, not not I, both wives and girlfriends, either one or the other. We didn't let them. Yeah, no, not at the same time. <laughs> I uh, you mentioned relationships, and and I just wanted to provide some insight. Uh, we we covered this. We did Jim Hughes recently on a podcast with the the Rawlings man, and we talked about how he became a part of the family. And I would say the same was true of you. You talked about the relationships you built on trips. So you built relationships with so many people. Uh, including myself and others like me, I, I, I remember one story just to talk about how, how Bill's importance in people's life is Wally Joyner set up a golf outing to Palm Springs years ago <laughs> for about, there were about 12 people that were, that Wally invited that were important in his life. <clears throat> it was with Wally, when Wally was still with the Padres and we go out there, we're having breakfast one morning before golf. And sitting at the table were Bruce Bochy, Wally's manager, Kevin Towers, his general manager, Rick Sutcliffe, who was broadcasting at the time, myself, Wally's agent, Bill, then his, Wally's Nike guy, and a, a friend named Max Reed, who was the golf course manager at Muirfield in Ohio. And he was brought along because Wally loves golf and wanted to, uh, you know, pay, pay him back. So Don Sutton walks up to the table and says, looks around, says hi to everybody. He goes, Wally? you've really got it going on here. You've got your manager, you've got your general manager, you've got your broadcaster, you've got your agent, and you've got your shoe man here. And points at this Max Reed, he goes, I don't know who you are, but you must be really important. <laughs> Bill was one of the important guys. And he's been, uh, it's not just on Nike trips, but so many things that I know all of those people, all these players would always love to have Bill along. Uh, because of how much he meant to them in their life, not only as uh, as Bill said, giving shoes, uh, free shoes to millionaires. He was more than that to everyone. I appreciate that. You haven't lived till you've been invited to Daryl's 
Strawberry and Eric Davis's double wedding, uh, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Billy, uh, you know what's interesting? And, and uh, it, this coincides with that Nike trip, uh, the story that Barry just told. There's a conduit to a, a personal contact that you've had, and we've mentioned him already, Rick Sutcliffe, which we absolutely love him. Uh, he's done a fabulous job, not only in his playing career, but his broadcasting career, a golf buddy of yours. I wanted to bring up this story, which really resonates with me because everything he wears, anytime you see Rick Sutcliffe, it's Nike. It's a Nike hat, which is his staple. He's got this. He's got the golf shirt. He's got all kinds of different things, and I know where he got it from, uh, and he probably deserves to wear it. Let's put it that way. But it was interesting. Barry, myself, and his wife, Robin, were playing golf, and he hits one astray, which I think probably shocks you a little bit too, right? <laughs> so he fades it to the left and it's mean? going in the bushes. So I proceed to hit my ball, go over and search for it. And he's looking about 40, 50 yards ahead of himself where we <laughs> knew where it went in, right? And you've been there before. Yeah. So Sut, Sut's wife, Robin, yells out, uh, I think I found it. <laughs> and, and he goes, oh, what is it? He, and she said, a precept. Now, a precept is a name of a golf ball for our listeners. And I know he's never hit a precept in his life. And if he did, it was out of the water. So he said, this is his quote, Sut's quote. Uh, maybe. <laughs> so we proceeded the rest of the round, obviously, to Raz Sut because he has never hit a golf ball. He actually shows us all the time the new sleeves of Nike golf balls that he would he would present to us. But one of those things, man, where I know your personal relationship with Rick was and continues to be very special to you. Uh, can you allude to that? And I'm sure you have a pretty good tale of Sut as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, gosh, just getting to know him uh, over the years and turning out to be best friends, family, I mean, the whole bit. It's hard to put in words, but I, I think Sut's contributed to so many memories for me. I, I think the one that I was just thinking about today was the time, it's one of my favorite memorable moments when Rick was broadcasting for the Padres back in the day and he did a game at Dodger Stadium and I, I hung around to meet him afterwards and he said, hey, Vince Scully has invited me into his private room, the Vince Scully room, which you don't, nobody goes in there unless and I said, so come on. So it's me, Rick, and Vin Scully. Vin had, a, Vin had a glass of red wine. We had a couple of beers talking about the game. I'm like, man, I have arrived. I mean, I, I've been working the ballpark for a while. And I, enough to say hi to Vince. But he, you know, I was just, you know, Vince, he'd say hi to anybody. But I'm like, this is, this is the greatest moment of my life. And Sut set it up. Uh, another day, another time I get a call, uh, I'd always ask Sut, I said, the only thing I can ever ask you to do is I'd love to play golf with Bill Murray. And I get a call one day and I'll pick it up at work. What are you doing tomorrow at 11 o'clock? <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, he's doing Carl from Caddyshack. I knew it as soon as I said, I hope I'm playing golf with you. He says, be at Palma Valley and don't use an assumed name. Click. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. I'm playing golf with Bill Murray, one of the funnest rounds I've ever had. So. Yeah, just things like that and being a loyal Nike guy. And I mean, another story, Phil Knight wanted to go to a game one time and uh, Sandy Brown, our gal, she called and gets Rick right after he had just lost a one nothing game <laughs> in the clubhouse. 
she didn't know. I mean, who knew? And it was like, you know, special request from Nike, Phil Knight. I mean, that, you know, he takes a call and handles it, you know, and it was just things like that. Always looking out for people. So yeah, we could, you could do a whole show on set. That might be one of your shows. Just do a whole <laughs> show with all, everybody's. We, we've, we've thought about it. Yeah. We, we, we could easily do that. Barry, uh, you being a uh, representative of, of uh, Rick Sutcliffe, how easy were those negotiations between you and Bill when you had to uh, come up with those shoe contracts? Well, I can, I, I can let Bill answer that, but uh, I always took the approach that his, uh, his service was so great. Uh, you know, if a guy needed shoes, he called Bill and he'd, he'd get them from three different places. He'd get one from Beaverton, one from LA and one from Tennessee or wherever they came from. Making sure everybody was always taken care of right away. And I had some clients who got lured by offers of more money and they would take off for a little while and let's see how this is and they'd come back because the service and the personal touch from bill was always great so it was never about the money i would also always tell bill that i knew he was going to treat us fairly uh just don't ever embarrass us and that's all that's all we ever needed from him yeah i think that you know ball players i learned real early that you know just different different i had a guy um I really shouldn't even say his name, but I, I, when we were first getting started that year, I took care of this guy. I sent him shoes to winter ball in Puerto Rico, which was no easy task back then in terms of standing in line and post. And I thought, man, I got, I got this guy with Dave, my buddy, Texas Rangers, you know, middle reliever, brief career, but you know, it needed anybody. Right. Like I get to spring training and there's old Dave and he's got Adidas on. And I'm like, I mean, you could have just, I mean, and this is a nobody, but it was just like a punch, punch to the gut. And I was like, Dave, Dave, what happened? I goes, oh, Bill, I'm sure you can understand. Adidas offered me $500 more in merchandise than what you were offering me. And I was like, wow. I guess that's how the game works sometimes, you know? I mean, yeah, so I, I learned a lesson early. It was probably a good lesson to learn. And yeah, there's there's been a few surprises, but, um, you know, to Barry's credit, uh, he always steered our his clients our way and, you know, and I think that speaks to the relationship too. As the game's grown, and I'm sure Mark, you know this, and Barry does, that the agent influence is huge because, you know, agents are afraid of losing, losing clients, and until they get to their arbitration years, there's really not a lot an agent can do for a player once he's signed. So the equipment deals are huge, and it validates. I've been told. You know, an equipment deal validates a player that, you know, he's he's an equal in the clubhouse. And then, of course, the validation turns into exaggeration because that little thousand dollar merch deal, he's telling his buddies he got five. And how come you only got a thousand? And then we get the calls, that, you know, your guy, this guy, it's same player. And he's, getting, you know, so it's, it's quite a it's quite a the personalities are all different in. I just realized that to get to the major league level, you have to be special in a lot of different ways. And some guys are special in how their egos are affected by uh, equipment deals. Uh, Bill, I think for most fans, we look at it as a, a kind of a transaction. The player asks for shoes. You're interested in him wearing your shoes. You give it to him. Maybe you throw him a few bucks, as you point out, an allowance, so to speak, to spend in the candy store. Uh, but beyond that, I would imagine over your 40 plus years with Nike, you must have received some really unusual Requests. We all know about Ken Griffey Jr., but this is a marquee guy asking, you know, can you put a wrap on a certain shoe or whatever? What are some of the quirkiest requests or or even outlandish demands you ever received? <laughs> well, 
I always thought Bartolo Colon asking for running shoes every time he saw me was pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> I never could figure that one out. But, you know, we started uh, with Bill Buckner, uh, who had terrible ankles. Uh, and he was like the first player to, to really wear high tops, which we made special, special for him. And that kind of morphed into a couple other players wanting high tops um, just for ankle support. In fact, Bill Buckner, I, I remember he, he told me that when he traveled on the road, the only request he had was that the traveling secretary give him a room near the ice machine. That's how bad his ankles were. Um, so we, you know, we tried. Um, and then the, the issue was that these quote special makeups became ego makeups because they weren't really there to help performance as much as uh, to put the number on and put the kids, you know, names, your kid's name in the tongue. And so it, it kind of morphed uh, Chan Ho Park. I remember one of the Korean flag. He was one of the first Koreans to make it big. And that got, that, that created a problem with the Dodgers and Major League Baseball. So there, there was a lot of little, little things, but at the same time, our competition was doing it too. And, and that was a big part of some of the deals for the higher echelon players to do special makeups um, for them. And, and again, what we've tried to do now, we have a, a number of players. It's, it's kind of been part of the deal. You got to do special makeups for the elite players is they design their own shoes. It's a lot easier now with computers and CADs. You can send, send designs, they can, they can tweak it and do what they want. And, you know, Corey Seager wanted to have uh, the Interstate 5 on, you know, inside the shoe, which no one could see. I mean, just just a, a million little things that uh, it's a lot easier to do with computers. But the problem is that special makeups are very hard, very expensive to make because you're only running, you know, might make 40 pair for a guy for the year. And so you're basically shutting down a factory line that's built to make, you know, 5,000 pair to sell. So it's uh it's a lot more labor intensive and a lot more spendy than than one would think um and it's uh it's just part of the challenge part of the deal so uh um it's it's been a good it's been great to fun it's fun to see but it sure has come a long way from bill buckner getting some high tops for his bad ankles <laughs> i i uh, had well several guys who wanted something special uh, but, you know, usually just a number on it or a nickname or something like that, nothing real major. But I did have an experience of going up to Beaverton after Jake Peavy won the Cy Young Award. And it was Nike's request. They wanted to make a special shoe for him because he had won the Cy. And it was an amazing process. In one day, they measured him. They did computerize his foot. Mm -hmm. we, they picked colors. We picked style. Uh, and they were beautiful. They were the Padre sand with some blue on them. And, you know, by the time I got home, there was already a special delivery package with a couple pairs of shoes already done. And he started wearing them. And the next thing I knew was uh, all the Padre players were asking if they could get some of that same design. And, and I called Bill and I said, yeah, can we get some of those for the other guys that and Jake and Bill's answer was, yeah, as soon as they win a Cy Young Award, you know, so that, he did have his limitations, but it was such amazing service to, to experience. That was pretty great. The, uh, the one story real quick was uh, Ichiro loved Nike, but, you know, being the guy from Japan, Asics uh, was his shoe and they made a shoe that was unbelievable, but he wanted to be with us. And Mark Parker, our president of Nike at the time, wanted him to be with us. So. 
we tried. We had a really small window. We had Ichi San come down to Oregon and do the lab testing. Uh, we did a foot casting up in Seattle, and he ordered sushi, best sushi I've ever had. Can you imagine when you're in Seattle and Ichiro orders sushi? Yeah. Sushi, you know, you're not getting the, the three pieces for five dollars sushi. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we tried and tried, and uh, he, we had a tight window, and we just couldn't duplicate these shoes. But uh, Mark Parker had promised to uh, take care of Ichiro with some shoes, uh, some special makeups anyway. And when they finally came, I took Mark up in his private jet, which was quite a thrill to fly up for a 10-minute flight from Portland to Seattle, go to the ball game, and took him in early, presented the shoes to Ichiro, even though he, he you know, couldn't wear a product, which I th always thought was pretty cool, Mark. And then as it so happens, we had seats down the left field line. And, and I think it was Dwight Evans, the uh, check foul ball, hit the president of Nike, Mark Parker, right in the hand while he was holding his beer. And <laughs> <laughs> the beer and the foul ball went flying. And uh, so he left with a beer-soaked uh, outfit and, and uh, no Ichiro to wear our shoes. Uh, Bill, it's interesting. Uh, so many people and our listeners probably understand you did everything for everybody else. But you mentioned it at the beginning of our podcast. Uh, one of your passions was photography, which I think is is fascinating uh, for our listeners. Uh, when I was playing, you used to come in and I used to love seeing your upgrade of your of your camera every single year. <laughs> but you'd show me some pictures of of your daughter playing soccer, Noni playing soccer uh things like that that were fascinating but you have to have something as being a baseball fan you have to have some of those special pictures of yourself or or something else does anything stick out in your mind well i mean i i kind of from my uh i was a stadium rat as i may have mentioned i mean i would get there early and do foul balls and try and you know i just thought being around the ballpark and I was a journalism major in college and photo photojournalism was a big part of it. I just always had a camera and I, you know, started, it, things were looser around clubhouses. And then, I mean, I got a picture of Lou Brock and Sandy Koufax before an old timers game at Dodger stadium, just talking to each other, things like that. Um, you know, a lot of pictures of uh, world series celebrations, worming my way into the clubhouse, you know, I mean, I got a, classic of me and Ron say champagne soaked after they won the 81 world series, uh, pictures like that, Eric Gagne, another one. I mean, just a lot of pictures, but mostly, you know, my daughter, she ended up playing division one soccer at Wake Forest as a goalkeeper. And, um, I actually have a picture above me. that was a picture of the team after they, uh, they beat, uh, Ohio state in the first round of the playoffs and a shutout overtime shutout. And I've never taken a picture of there's, I think 22 people, coaches and players, gathered around like literally three minutes after they had the winning goal in overtime and the excitement and the smiles, every, every face is perfect. And my daughter happened to jump up in the back row at the last second and she's like towering above. So yeah, I've always just had a camera and I, I learned from being on a lot of these Nike photo shoots that the, the cheapest thing a photographer has is film, you know, as time is more important. So now of course we don't have film, but just shoot away and you know, one out of a hundred will, uh, will come through so uh, yeah I've had a lot of great experiences with camera and still carry it to this day of course now I you know everyone's got a cell phone camera so uh, I don't have quite the advantage that I used to have taking pictures that no one else could get but uh, yeah I still enjoy it also besides taking pictures I've seen a few pictures and I have them and I'll I'll throw them up Mark you can put them on our Instagram and on the website but 
of Bill in certain situations. He talked about his ability to get in the clubhouse. He had the ability to be with Vince Lombardi after he won the first Super Bowl and the ability to be with Steve Garvey after he hit the home runs in game, had the home run in game four of the playoffs in 84. And there's Bill front and center right there. But we'll, we'll give everybody a chance to see those. But Bill, I wanted to, you've been very generous with your time. I wanted one more thing I know you wanted to talk about circling back to uh, Glenn Burke and, and how much he meant to you and uh, the interesting things about him and now a new book about him that you've had a part of. So uh, um, so I got contacted by an author, uh, Andrew Moranis, M-A-R-A-N-I-S-S, uh, about a year ago, and he was doing a book on Glenn Burke. And I, I knew Glenn just from uh, encounters at the ballpark in 77 and getting in the clubhouse, but um, I found out later uh, after he left the Dodgers that, that he was openly gay and became, you know, the first gay baseball player to uh, come out. And the Dodgers moved him um, when, as the book points out, they, they offered him, I think, $50,000 to get married, just to put on appearances. And he refused and they traded him Oakland shortly thereafter. And Billy Martin was the manager and that didn't go well. But um, all I know is that Glenn Burke was this unbelievable specimen of a uh, ball player. He was the fourth outfielder. He ended up starting in the World Series in 77 because Rick Mundy's back went out. Dusty Baker loved him. And um, it's an amazing book. Uh, just got released by Amazon last week called Singled Out. And I, I've, I've got a couple pages in there of my experience with him. And, and I, I honestly had no idea uh, that Glenn was uh, gay and not that it would have mattered, but um, he, he was very nice to me. He got me in the clubhouse, introduced me to players. Uh, and um, it was quite an experience uh, being in that clubhouse in those days because you could pretty much anybody could get in. Uh, and of course the book talks about Tommy Lasorda's son, uh, Spunky, who was, who was gay, who was in the clubhouse. And uh, apparently him and uh, Glenn were, were, had a relationship. I'm not sure about that. The book talks quite a bit about it, but it's a history of uh, the gay movement and uh, highly recommended as a baseball book and a, a book for society as well. It's amazing uh, what baseball does for us and the impact that, that individuals can have, um, it just fascinates me uh, in the connection that the game of baseball and sports have. Uh, you did mention, uh, obviously, um, having uh, Phil Knight be an impact in what happened to you. Also, just knowing that that uh, Nike was huge in your career and knowing what was going on. Uh, what did that do for you, Bill? Uh, what do you remember most about your experiences with Nike? Um, I think... Just the fact that the company was so, and Phil, really, when I say the company, was he was like five steps ahead of everybody else. And he could make decisions that didn't make a whole lot of sense. And then, you know, you'd have that aha moment, like, wow, yeah, Phil, Phil knew, Phil was on it. Um, the fact that um, we listened to the voice of the athlete um, and the other mantra we had was do the right thing. Um, those, those two things kind of always, always stuck with me. Um, but being around Phil, I've been fortunate enough to be around Phil from that second day on, uh, got to go on a lot of the college football trips, which were a similar trip to baseball. Uh, that's another story and how I got on, but, um, basically Phil would go on those and uh, play golf with him and see him 
uh, interact with people. And, uh, you know, I like to say that Phil is really just your average billionaire, you know, when, when you're around him. So um, he's, uh, he's a normal guy, very generous, uh, and uh, just amazing foresight. And uh, really, I, everything I, I have, uh, I owe to him as far as Nike goes, because uh, he took a chance on a, on a malt, malt vendor and uh, let me do my thing and never bothered me for, you know, 43 years. Well, I'll tell you this, Bill, you uh, shaped that brand and I'm sure you get a lot of credit internally, but now our listeners finally get a chance to see the man behind the curtain. And whenever we watch a major league baseball game or any sporting event, not only do they maybe think Nike, but they will certainly think Bill Frechette. And I know Mark and Barry have said this countless times. The beauty of this sport are, um, really comes down to the relationships that develop and that people are afforded. So thank you for your time. Thank you for building the relationship with our listeners. And I know Mark and Barry feel extremely grateful, as I do, that you were able to spend a few of your busy retirement moments with us. <laughs> no, I appreciate it, guys. It, it, it's been a great journey from uh, some cotton mesh aster grabbers in 77 to uh, every player in Major League Baseball now has a swoosh on their uniform top and their pants bottom so uh yeah that's 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 been a great uh, a great journey and uh nothing but good good thoughts and i appreciate you guys what you do you do a great job i've really enjoyed uh, listening to the previous podcasts and uh, keep up the good work thanks so much for checking out major league beginnings if you had as much fun as we did we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from it could be apple Podcasts, google play spotify wherever you like we're just glad to have you aboard and we'll see you next time thank you for listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.